Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. It's always wonderful, and we've, been, we've had the blessing this year of seeing quite a few people come to faith in Christ, the blessing of seeing quite a few people baptized, and so our desire is for that not to stop but to continue. And so let me challenge you, as we've been talking about now for a number of weeks, to keep living out your faith, keep sharing your faith, and trust God to work. As I mentioned last week, we're going to be taking three weeks off from our study in the book of Acts. This morning, we're looking at Luke chapter 15. Jason will be preaching next week. And then on July 2nd, I'm going to be looking at a passage in Romans, and we're going to be dealing with the Christian's response to government. That should be fun. Um, but that'll be on July 2nd. But we are looking forward to seeing what God's Word has to say. As, as a body of believers who believe the Bible, we not, don't just believe that the Bible is inspired. We believe the Bible is sufficient. And what that means is that as we have issues arise in culture, society, our lives, our family, our first response should be to go to God's Word to see how it guides and how it instructs. And so we're striving to model that. And so even with a topic such as the Christian's response to government, the Bible speaks to that. And so we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 15. It's a passage of Scripture that is familiar, but at the exact same time, it is at best misunderstood, and I think the, the thrust of this passage is missed completely at times. Obviously, this is Father's Day, and this message is not a, necessarily a Father's Day message, but there's a lot I think fathers can learn from this, as well as mothers. We all have a lot that we can learn. But I want us to have an open mind this morning as to what God may be impressing on our hearts and dealing with us. And so we've already prayed a, a couple times, but as we go through the message, have a spirit of prayer that God would speak to you. Luke chapter 15 is a chapter that contains three different parables. In fact, if you look through the chapter, you'll see the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. In reality, these three parables are connected and are all a part of one teaching of Jesus. Many times we look at these and we divide them up, as we're going to do this morning, and just look at one parable, but they're all connected. The problem is sometimes the, the emphasis or what Jesus is trying to teach is lost. What I want to do this morning is look specifically at the parable known as the prodigal son. You're familiar with this. Most of you probably are familiar with this. But I want us to notice really that what's often missed from this. Let me give you a little bit of the background of what's taking place. In the previous passage, the previous chapter, Luke chapter 14, Jesus had indicated that he welcomed all people to come to him. In fact, look at chapter 14, Luke 14, verse 21. Here's what it says. So the slave came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his slave, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. What Jesus was stressing is that he welcomed all people to come to himself. Now, this is important for us to understand on two different fronts. Here's the first one. If you are here this morning, you cannot say that God will not welcome you because of your past or because of what sin is in your, currently in your life. There is nothing that you can do that will cause you to be unreachable. 
Your sin drowns in the ocean of God's mercy, His love, and His grace. So you cannot sit here and say, well, if I turn to Christ, He will not receive me because he, you, you don't know what I've done. No, I may not. But I do know that Christ welcomes everyone to come to Him regardless of your past. So you may be here this morning and you may have walked in and you're coming to a worship service, but in your mind you're thinking, you know what, God's not going to accept me. God's not going to love me. God's not going to welcome me. God doesn't want me. And I want you to know right off the bat this morning, you are wrong. No one is outside the reach of God's grace. The second side of this, I think we equally have to understand, is that as a church who is striving to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish, we will not meet anyone who falls outside of God's potential grace. Meaning, as you meet people where you work or in your family and you're looking at them, you cannot look at anyone and say, God does not want them. No one on the face of the earth, not the worst of sinners, not anyone, falls outside of God's love. So that impacts then how we do evangelism, right? means that we don't go out looking for the moral to see them saved. We go to the moral as well as the immoral. We go to the ones who are in prison as well as the ones who are in church. If they are without Christ, God loves them and God desires a relationship with them. That's the idea here. Now, here's the problem. The Pharisees would never welcome those types of people. Jesus in these passages are talking to the, is talking to the Pharisees, and it bothered the Pharisees that Jesus would welcome these kinds of people, not only welcome them, but sit down with them and eat with them and strive to minister with them. In fact, if you look at the first couple of verses of chapter 15, you see the mentality of the Pharisees. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. This is Luke 15, verse 1. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? So the, the Pharisaical mindset said, well, we know these people exist, but how in the world is Jesus talking with them and ministering to them and eating with them? See, in the Pharisees' mind, Jesus could not be God because he spent time with sinners. See, in the mindset of the Pharisees, their way of thinking, this meant that Jesus could not possibly be God because Christ's attitude towards sinners was different from what they thought God's attitude towards sinners would be. Their view was that God loved the righteous and hated the sinners. In fact, some of the core groups of the Pharisees went as far as to say that God delighted in the death of sinners because it removed evil from the earth. So when Jesus is coming forward and he is reaching out to sinners, ministering to sinners, welcoming sinners, eating with sinners, the Pharisees looked at Christ and said, you cannot possibly be God because your attitude towards sinners is different than what we think God's attitude towards sinners would be. They had no concept, the Pharisees had no concept of a father's love being extended to sinners. They had no comprehension of a God who would actually want to bring sinners into a fellowship with him and restore a relationship to himself. Christ's actions were completely contradictory to their view of God, and as a result, they rejected him. Many times you read through the Gospels, and you want to know, why did the Pharisees, why did the scribes, why did all these religious leaders reject Christ? Well, it was specifically because he reached out to and ministered to sinners when the scribes and Pharisees thought that you should reject the sinners. Christ's actions were contradictory to what they thought. The difference between how the Pharisees viewed God and how Christ's actions pointed to God indicated that there was a disconnect, a misunderstanding. So the question this morning really is, what is God's attitude towards sinners? 
And each of the parables in Luke chapter 15 answer that question. So when you read the parable of the lost sheep, the, the question that that parable is answering is what is God's attitude towards sinners? When you read the parable of the lost coin, the question that that parable answers is what is God's attitude towards sinners? When we get down to the prodigal son, again, the question is what is God's attitude towards sinners? And what we are going to see as we go through this is God's love. When we heard Pastor Jason read about it, we heard the choir sing about it, we're going to see it even more this morning. What I want us to walk away with this morning, foundationally, is an understanding of what God's love is really like, where God's love reaches, who God's love impacts. Verse 3, you see the phrase, so he told them this parable, and he begins this parable What I want to do is give you several points. If you have your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, there'll be an outline. Let me encourage you to fill this in as we go through this. Let me give you number one. Let's just dive right in. Number one, God loves when love is not deserved. God loves when love is not deserved. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 11. This is where the parable, this specific parable begins. Here's what he says. He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods where the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. Let's pause here in our reading for a second. If you look at the life of this younger son... There was nothing lovable about his actions. There was nothing that he did that would say, okay, he deserves the Father's love. In reality, he was a rebellious, despicable person. He showed his selfishness by asking for his share of the estate. In fact, what he's literally saying is, Dad, I'm waiting on you to die and you're not dying, so go ahead and give me my estate now. I I just want it now. I don't care about you. I don't care about your life. I don't care about your role. Just give me my estate now. And throughout the entire story, we see this attitude of someone who rejects his father, who rejects the instruction of his father, rebels against his father, demonstrates hatred towards his father, desires to do what he wants to satisfy his sinful desires with no regard for anyone else other than himself. He is completely unlovable. Romans 5.8 is a verse I would encourage everyone to memorize. It says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you think about that verse, here's the question. When did Christ demonstrate love for us? You might know what the answer is according to that verse. While we were sinners. See, God did not look at you and wait on you to become lovable to start loving you. God did not give you a list of things that you have to change in your life before you are eligible for God's love. There was not a list of things that you had to adjust or change or do to make yourself lovable. The reality of God's love this morning is that you are loved by God, and the truth is none of us are lovable. 
None of us deserve God's love. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself lovable to God. And we are all in the exact same boat. So let's clarify something. Because what we like to do is place sins in different categories, right? You ever compare yourself to somebody else and say, well, I never did that. Some of you have, I can tell. What we have to understand, though, is that we are all in this together and that your sin separates you from God. And the worst criminal sitting in jail who's committed the worst acts you can ever imagine, their sin separates them from God. And we are no less deserving or no more deserving than anyone else. You cannot stand before God one day and point to someone down further in the line and say, I am better than this person. And God is not going to listen to you and say, well then, come on in. That is not the response. See, what we have to begin in this passage in understanding is that when we say God loves when love is undeserved, we can all be recipients of God's love even though we all do not deserve God's love. You cannot be good enough, give enough, serve enough, pray enough, be baptized enough. None of those things can cause you to earn or deserve God's love. But the good news this morning is, is that God loves even though it is undeserved. You are a recipient of God's love even though you do not deserve or could not earn God's love. And that is wonderful news for us. That's wonderful news for the community in which we live because we may go about our daily business and we may see people who seem to be unlovable. Be reminded God loves them. We may see people who seem to have fallen further than what God's grace can reach down to. Understand God loves them. This changes how you live. This changes how you do missions. This changes how you approach outreach. We love him because he first loved us. Number two, God longs for a relationship with us. Look at verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. The way this is worded in this story indicates that the father did not see the son coming by accident. It's not that the father was out working in the fields one day and happened to look up and he saw somebody coming and looked a little closer and realized it was his son. It's the idea that every single day he got up and he went to the road, so to speak, to look out to see if today might be the day that his son would return. Our boys, whenever their birthday is close, they get birthday cards with goodies in it from grandparents. And when it's time for their birthday, you know what they're doing every day in relation to the mailbox? They are standing at the window waiting and looking for the mailman to come. And as soon as the mailman comes, what do you think they do? I can't get them to get the mail any other day except right around their birthday. Then they're excited about it. See, here's what happens. They are anticipating that mail coming. I want you to picture in this story a father who is standing at the door, standing by the end of the road, at the end of the driveway, so to speak, looking every single day, longing and hoping that today is the day that the son returns. See, the father longs for a relationship with us. Even though the son left his father's house to go indulge in his desires, 
While his inheritance was great, it didn't last very long. It was overcome with famine in a short time. He had absolutely nothing. He squandered his inheritance. He needed employment, and the only job that was available was the feeding of pigs. Now understand how humiliating this would have been for a Jew. A pig could cause, if a Jew touched a pig or ate pig, it would cause ceremonial uncleanness. And so he is resorting to this this bottom-level thing for a Jew of being lower than the swine, feeding the pigs, humiliating himself. In fact, the pigs had more than he did. He had rejected his father's love, rejected his father's provision, spit in the face of his father's authority. He finally gets to the place where he's willing to swallow his pride, go back and become a servant of the father without any hope. I mean, as he is looking at going back home, he has no promise of acceptance. He has no hope of acceptance, no hope of love in his own mind. He basically says, I can go be one of the hired hands so at least I can have food. But I want you to understand something. The father longs for a relationship with his children. The father did not forget about the son. He did not write the son off. The father's love did not begin with the son's return. In fact, his father had never stopped loving the son. He loved the son when he was born. He loved the son when he was selfishly asking for the inheritance. He loved his son when his son left. He loved his son while his son was wasting the inheritance. He loved his son when his son was living in sin. He loved his son when his son was suffering. He loved his son when he was unworthy of any love. And it is this love, this continual ongoing love that he had for his son is the reason why the son knew he could at least return. Now he had no hope of being welcomed back and accepted back, but he knew my father loves. And every single day the father was standing there longing for his return, motivated by love, motivated by this sincere concern. And so there's some of you here this morning who at one point you were living in the love of God. You gave your life to Christ, but over time you have drifted away to where you no longer think about the love of God, you no longer enjoy the love of God. The love of God is simply a doctrine that is talked about, but is not something that is experienced. And over time you have drifted gradually and gradually and gradually away from God, and what you need to understand is that God is standing at the end of the driveway with his arms open wide, hoping that today is the day you return, longing for you. Wanting that relationship with you, that relationship maybe that at one time existed, but over time you became bitter and you became disenfranchised and over time you kind of turned your back on God, spit in the face of God's authority. He is there with his arms open wide, looking down the street saying, is today the day? And some of you need to make that decision to swallow your pride and go home to the Father. Some of you today need to understand that while you've been squandering everything and wasting the gift of time and wasting the resources that God has given you, that every single day while you've been doing that, God's love for you has not altered at all. That every single day while you've turned your back on God, he has been faithfully loving you. And every single day while you've been living in opposition to God, he's been faithfully loving you. And every single day while you've been ignoring him, doing your own thing, fulfilling your own desires, doing whatever it is you wanted to do, every single day God has been standing there looking to see if you are coming back today. And even right now, he's looking. His relationship for you, his his desire for a relationship with you, his love that he has for you has not changed at all. And he is saying, maybe today will be the day. 
Some of you, as we're going to see here in a few moments in our text, some of you are maybe not in that scenario, but you've never accepted Christ. And that same picture is true for you where God is standing with open arms and saying, maybe today is the day that he will come to me. Let's continue. Number three, God has compassion. The rest of verse 20, let me just read verse 20 again. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arm around his neck, and kissed him. God loves sinners when they are unlovable, when they're living in sin, when they do not deserve it. What we have to understand is that God looks upon us with compassion. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see over and over again that Jesus would come to a new area and he would look out over the crowds of people. And the Bible says that he was moved with compassion for them. Sometimes it says as he, he was, had compassion on them as sheep who had no shepherd. He looked at people with compassion. But here's the point I don't want us to miss. The compassion was proven with actions. It says he had compassion on him, but then he proved that compassion by running to his son, wrapping his arms around him and kissing him. The compassion had action. See, if you and I claim to have compassion for other people, but yet the compassion that we claim to have is not proven or supported by action, then do we really have compassion? See, we can stand up here every week and say we love our community and we have compassion on their community and we have people we work with who need Christ and we have compassion on them. But if that compassion that we say we have in our hearts does not overflow in our lives and produce action that actually impacts people, then what, what good is the compassion? See, the compassion of the Father in this parable was demonstrated to the Son. The passion that the father had was evident, not just to the son, but as you'll see in a few moments, to everyone who is around. The compassion that you and I have for other people must be demonstrated in order to be real. As a church, if we say we have compassion on sinners, but yet we do absolutely nothing to minister to them and to meet their needs and to demonstrate that love to them, then the compassion that we claim to have is worthless. Worthless. What would have happened if God would have looked down on humanity and had compassion but then did nothing? You wouldn't have had that song to sing this morning. You wouldn't have had the cross to look to. The compassion must be proven with action. Number four, God grants forgiveness. This is such good news. God grants forgiveness. Look at verse 21. And following, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son comes to his father, acknowledges his sin, confesses that sin to his father. Father acknowledges that he is undeserving and unworthy of anything from his father, and that the moment of confession is also the moment of repentance, and it is followed from the father by forgiveness. It would have been very easy of the father to look at his son and say, I told you so. We're never tempted to do that, right, with our kids? At least three times a day. In fact, in this culture, it would have been 
right for the father to reject his son. I mean, a son would leave and turn his back on his father and on his family, and he would return and confess. Why would the father want to forgive? But as you know, we are promised in Scripture that when we come to God, regardless of what is in our past, and we confess our sins to him, the Bible says that he cast our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he cast them in the deepest part of the ocean to be remembered no more, and that if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. We have the promise of God's forgiveness. And there are no limits on that forgiveness. What I mean by that is there is nothing that you have done or can do or are doing where you can sit back and say, God can't forgive that wrong. If you confess and you repent, God will forgive. That is the wonderful and faithful forgiveness of our God. God is merciful, He is gracious, and He is forgiving. Number five. God offers restoration. We read verse 22 through verse 24 where they bring in the robe and they kill the, the calf and they have this feast and they put a ring on his finger. I'll, I'll, give me just a second to provide a little cultural background here. Because sometimes I think we say when, when God forgives us, all that means is we no longer have to suffer the punishment for our sin. And certainly that's true. But this point adds an added element to that, that not, God not only forgives, but that he also offers restoration. So when the son comes back, the father runs to him, they bring him in, they bring a robe and put on him, right? Well, this robe that they put on him was not just because he was cold. This is this robe that they put on him signified that he was now the heir. This robe would have the same importance, same significance as the robe that Jacob would have given to Joseph, saying that Joseph had been chosen by his father to be his heir. In this parable, the son had squandered selfishly, wasted his inheritance, but is restored as heir of the father. The ring that they put on his finger was not just a ring. This ring was a picture of, of he could now act on his father's behalf. He had the same authority as his father, and so he could carry about his father's business. So he turns his back on his father, runs away, deserts his family. He comes back. He is made the heir of his father. He's put a ring on his finger saying that he can act with his father's authority. They put sandals on his feet, which was, kind of separated him out from the servants. The servants didn't wear shoes. They kill the fatted calf. There's this celebration taking place. The father didn't just love him and receive him back, but he made him the heir. He gave him authority. He made it clear to all that this son is not just forgiven for his actions, but he is restored in the relationship. So this parable teaches that, that when we turn to God, God not only forgives us and redeems us and saves us from the penalty of our sin, but we are actually brought into a relationship with God to where we are adopted into his family. We are heirs of the king. We can actually enter into the throne, throne room of grace. We can be ambassadors for Christ, acting on his behalf. We have this relationship. Regardless of what's in your past, you can have the relationship with God. I don't want us to miss what happens in verse 25 and following. Because this is actually the whole point of the parable. As much as we learn about the Son, as much as we learn about God through the Father, the punchline of this whole story is in verse 25 and following. Look at these verses with me. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. And they, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, his son, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but while we... But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Those verses are actually the main point of this whole parable. And this is, the, this is what people often miss. And so hang with me a few more minutes, all right? Because th- th- this is the key point. The love of God saves those who have squandered everything, who have rebelled against God, who have lived in all kinds of evil sin. But the love of God also saves the self-righteous hypocrite who is clinging to his moralism. See, simple morality apart from Christ will send you to hell. See, the Pharisees in this story would not have identified with the father, and the Pharisees in this story would not have identified with the younger son. The Pharisees, the audience to whom Jesus is speaking, would have found themselves in this older brother. See, as Jesus is telling this parable, he is setting them up. See, the Pharisees would have looked at the older brother and said, good for him. He is, he is holding to this righteous standard. He is holding to this standard of morality. They would have looked at this story, and they would have seen the younger son, and they would have condemned him. They would have seen the love of the father demonstrated to the younger son and say, how could he do that? That is not right. How could he love the son who has rebelled against him? And they would have identified with the older brother who was righteously angry because God's love had been demonstrated to this awful sinner. The scribes and Pharisees listening to this would have applauded the actions of the older brother. In their minds, the older brother was upholding the honor and was acting in righteous anger over the son's shameful sin and over the father's shameful forgiveness. They would have considered the father's actions outrageous. The fact that the brother was so focused on the actions of his younger brother made it impossible for him to understand that he, too, needed a relationship with the Father. And here's what happens. We can come into church every single week, and we can cling to our morality, and we can cling to our self-righteousness, and we can look and we can say, how could God save that person over there? How could God's love reach them? Why would God want them? How would God forgive them? And we fail to understand that in our morality and in our self-righteousness and in our hypocrisy, we are just in need of God's love as the sinner who is doing everything that we view as despicable. See, it is possible for you and I to go through the motions of worship and go through the motions of church and cling to our standard of morality, but at the exact same time reject Christ. The father comes out to the older son and says, come in, and the oldest son says, no, I want nothing to do with this. See, the father's love, the love of the father reaches down to the one who has rebelled, who has sinned, who is living in sin, and says, I want you, I want to have a relationship, come into the party. And at the exact same time, the father comes out to the older, pharisaical, older brother and says, I also want a relationship with you, please come in. 
And both people are now faced with the decision of how do I respond to the invitation of God. Notice that the father did not force the older brother into the house. He simply invited him. Notice that the father did not chase down his son to the other country and force him to come back, but he was there longing daily for him to return. And you may find yourself in one of these two camps this morning. Maybe you're, in this, you're on this side where you have wandered from God, you are living in rebellion to God, you're actively participating and involved in sin that you know God condemns. And I want you to know that God is standing there with his arms open wide saying, please come home. Please come home. And at the exact same time, you may be sitting here this morning with your Bible in your lap. And you're looking and you're saying, how can God save them? And in your mind, you're thinking, you know what, I'm good because I'm righteous and I'm moral and I do all these good things. And you're saying the exact same things this older brother said. I've always done what you've said and I've kept your law. And the father has walked out of the house to invite you into the celebration Maybe you've been rejecting. See, the love of God is available to all. It's available to the active sinner, and it's available to the sin of self-righteousness. The love of God reaches to those who are actively rebelling against God, and it reaches those who are attempting to earn God's favor through their works. God's love is available to all. Not just his love, but his forgiveness and his restoration. See, what I want you to understand this morning as we close is that God is here, and he is standing with his arms wide open, and he is longing for you to return. He is longing for you to come. And some of you, you walked in this morning, and at one point in your life, you had this growing, dynamic, energetic relationship with God, but over time, you've drifted, and you've wandered, and you've not cared anything about God. I want you to get the picture that God is with open arms saying, come home, and he is longing, and every day he is looking, saying, please, come back. And at the exact same time, some of you, you've been active and you've been involved every single week, but deep down, you're not trusting in what Christ has done, you are trusting in your own ability to be good. And Romans tells us that the best we can do, all our good deeds is nothing more than filthy rags. And while you're standing out, clinging to your goodness, the Father has come out of the house and invited you into the party, invited you into the celebration. Whichever group you're in, God is there with open arms, saying, come, please, come. He's longing for you to come back. He's filled with compassion. He's demonstrated that through the cross. He's saying, come. Whichever group you're in, you equally need Christ. Whichever group you're in, you equally need to return to the cross. Whichever group you're in, you've been invited to the celebration. You have a decision to make. Both groups need to understand that God loves when it is not deserved. God longs for a relationship. God has compassion. God is offering you forgiveness, and God is offering restoration. But he's not going to drag you in the house. He's going to open the door and say, come on in. And you have to make that decision. Will you stand with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, this morning, you may be speaking to hearts. In fact, I believe you are. 
And God, there may be people here this morning who maybe on the one side they identify with the youngest brother, who they've been rebelling actively against you, and God, this morning they understand how much you long to have that relationship with them and that you're waiting on them to return. And God, there may be other people here who, for no telling how long, have been clinging to their self-righteousness, their moralism, and they've been failing to see that they equally need the Father. And God, to both groups this morning, you're saying, come. You've invited both to come and have this relationship and forgiveness and restoration that only you can offer. And God, I pray this morning that there'll be people who respond. God, I pray that there'll be people this morning who will simply turn to you and understand that you are a loving, compassionate, forgiving, restoring God who longs for a relationship with every single one of us but also help us to understand that it's up to us to return to the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing. I'm going to be standing down front. Listen, for the younger son to come home, he had to swallow his pride. And there's some of you who will stay where you are and fail to make a decision for God because you're unwilling to swallow your pride. If God is speaking to you this morning, swallow your pride. Do what it is that God is speaking to you and challenging you to do. Let's sing this song. I'll be down front if you need someone to pray with you. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.